Hey guys, welcome back to the Alex Amo I Am PT podcast. And I'm sort of smiling today because Alex and Daria got to see a sneak peek of, I think they're tied for number one fans. Um, my mom, who's here with me, that's why I'm smiling from cheek to cheek. Been eating some good food since Sunday. <laughs> so um, we want to thank everyone else who have subscribed to our channel, liked us, followed us. I think we crossed over... 200 Twitter followers uh, today. So we appreciate the support we've been having. Um, keep subscribing to our channel. Keep liking the episodes. Not only just watching them, but keep liking them as well. Um, and we are also now on TikTok. So check us out. Uh, we are not as funny as most things, but we try to be as creative as possible. So tonight we have Untap Physio, Dr. Daria Oller. Did I say his name? Ola, yep. Ola. Um, she is both an athletic trainer and physical therapist. And she was known for tap dancing and running. However, she's had to put those things on hold because she contracted COVID. And we are going to talk about the stuff that she's been experiencing since. If you like the t-shirt that I'm wearing, I thrive in spite of. You can go to Creatively Meek website and purchase one. Uh, they also have coffee mugs and other items as well, too. So shout out to Dr. Um, uh, Meeker, Mitchell, and Creatively Meeks. Good deal. Yes, thank you to everybody, as always, for uh, subscribing, following, commenting. Uh, it really means a lot to both Mo and myself. Um, and then very excited to have uh, Daria on with us today. Uh, you know, I've been following her on, on Twitter for a while. She's a very vocal uh, about a lot of different things, and, and we'll get into some of that today. Um, but obviously, one of the, the most things that she's been the most vocal of uh, recently has been her struggles in dealing with COVID and how it's impacted her, her personal life and, and taken a lot away uh, some of the things that she has enjoyed to, a, to an extent. Um, I know that she has tried to do some of it um, and, and had to kind of, you know, mod, uh, change certain things about it. And, and she'll get into that with us. But first of all, thank you for joining us, uh, taking you with us this evening and, and welcome. Welcome to the Alex and Bill show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Are we excited too? Yeah. So, so, so we'll, yeah, let's, yeah. we'll just jump into it. Um, you know, it's been a long, and honestly, I lose track of time because these last couple of years just seem kind of like a blur. Uh, but, you know, early on, you know, things start getting crazy. And you live in New Jersey, mm -hmm. is that correct? Yep. Yes, okay. northern New Jersey. So, you know, things got pretty crazy out the gate, um, you know, closer to, to your area because that's yeah. where we were hearing a lot about all the different things that were going on with COVID and the hospitals getting overwhelmed and, and things. Of, so take us back to, you know, how this all started for you, even, you know, before you found out that you had, you know, contracted COVID and, and, and then go from there. Yeah. So something interesting at some point in February, 2020, I remember hearing about COVID on the radio 
And they were mentioning how it was cutting back on people going to Chinatown in New York City. And they were saying, you know, it's not a big deal. It's fine. Keep going. Like they were like, you know, they're making you feel like this would be OK. And then things very, very quickly changed. So I remember like early, early March 2020, there's a small community hospital close by where my dad used to work forever. He's a respiratory therapist. And the president of the hospital came out and said, the news is not reporting this accurately. This is bad. And they were just as a tiny little hospital inundated. Like my dad let me know the morgue probably held four people. So they were one of the first ones with the trucks and everything. Um, it was horrible. And just to see the president coming out and saying that, you're going, oh, and you're just the little hospital. You're not one of the big, you know, like trauma one places. Um, it was crazy. So, and then like a week later I got sick, but even then it was, the information wasn't fully coming out on, you know, how bad it was everywhere. And at that time I was in the middle of transitioning to my job now at Proactivity. So I was there part-time and then I was, um, which is in New York city and in New Jersey. And then I was working, um, at a clinic in Bergen County, which is right where the epicenter of everything was. And it was just wild. Cause I remember no one knew what to do. Like we knew everything was going on around us, but masks were kind of up in the air. You know, everything's like being Lysol. Um, and then I, I think I, I contracted it at dance rehearsal in Midtown Manhattan. Um, that's the only known exposure that I had. Um, and I got sick about a week later. And I remember being in the clinic and going, oh, no, like just body aches, just, you know, like not feeling like you're coming down with something. And so many people kept telling me, you're fine. It's in your head. I'm like, when has this ever been in my head? I'm not someone who's typically sick. You know, I can push through stuff. And I just to sum that up, like, I just never got better. Like I had a lot of um, like breathing. I was super short of breath. Like this would have made me short of breath. My chest hurt, my lungs hurt. Um, I was just really fatigued. I had a lot of nerve pain and I just never got better. And at that time, everyone kept saying two weeks, two weeks and you're fine. You either die or you're better. And I didn't know anybody else with this. So I just kind of kept tweeting everything and saying, I'm not better. Here are my symptoms. Here's what's going on. You know, it is still like months until like the end of July um, that I finally started to find other people who had it. Oh, so this was even before the vaccine, they found oh, out yeah. what, this so was... what, when you were experiencing, you said you had the muscle ache and the fatigue. Did you ever have mm -hmm. a fever? No. So that was, I kept checking. I would have bet money that I had a fever. I felt like it in 99, like it was nothing. Um, something interesting though, the, within, I think the first week that I was sick, my husband and I were out walking our dogs. And he made a comment about smelling food that was being cooked, that the dinner smelled good. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't smell anything. That's not funny. But I didn't know that was a symptom. It hadn't been reported yet. It was that early that we had no idea. Everyone was saying, like, I didn't qualify for testing because I didn't have a fever or a cough or congestion. I had a ton of other symptoms, but nobody knew at that point. Yeah. Long COVID didn't have a name. I it was So I got sick March 16, 2020, and long COVID didn't get a name until the middle of May. So it was two months of not even having, like, knowing what to call what I was experiencing. Okay. Um, so has there been any specific research done on how to treat long COVID? Because I know while um, we were going through the epidemic, the pandemic, sorry, um, they were just saying, okay, we should do this, we should do that. But there was no like standard protocol for physical therapy treatment. Um, for patients within like the first uh, two weeks or the first month. So now that we are two years in, is there any detailed research um, or protocol to help to rehab patients who are experiencing long COVID symptoms? That's tough. So 
I'm going to take this back a step. We think right now what it looks like is long COVID. So it's a big umbrella term. It just means you have okay. symptoms after you have COVID. So what we think is probably going to be a few different things, but we just don't know yet. Um, like say someone who is in the ICU with prolonged symptoms is going to be very different than someone like me with prolonged symptoms. Um, but so people like me who have more of that like neuroimmune response, because people say coming out of the ICU like that, we know what to do. We know how to treat them. This is very different. Um, the general things we're learning from the myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome community, which is stop, rest and pace. So rather than pushing exercise and then come on one more rep, you can do it. Keep going. It is teaching patients how to pull back. It's typically not our standard therapeutic exercise, definitely not graded exercise protocol. Like we look, we'll look, sit with patients and go over, where can you rest during the day? Where can you pace? How can we help you manage the symptoms to let you do what's most important? A lot of patients experience dysautonomia. So it's having to get that under control first. So if somebody's heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature are all over the place, we can't even think about maybe exercise or physical activity yet. So the big one is getting that under control. But there's, on the medical side, there isn't set like interventions yet. It's not take this medication. There's studies coming out all the time looking at what is happening, why is this going on, but there's nothing set at all, which is really frustrating. Um, like one of the bigger ones right now is this, if people have microclots, um, Germany's doing a process called apheresis where they filter them out, but you have to be able to afford to go to Germany to do that. But that's the big one we're looking at like viral persistence um, to see if like eliminating that helps. There's probably an autoimmune response. We're looking at if people have cerebral hypoperfusion. <laughs> We're seeing um, changes in gas exchange at the lungs and in the periphery. Like there's so many different things and it's kind of looking at like, where do you start? So us as PTs, we're just looking at like symptom management. How do we help get things under control? How do we help patients get through their day? If you have family, if you have kids, like what things you actually, like you have, have to do and how can we help you manage it? It's crazy. There's no set protocol either. It's not like say orthopedics, here's your ACL protocol that we can probably follow. Everyone is so different. There's not a timeline. There isn't a, if you can do this, then you could do this. It is very episodic and unpredictable. So somebody could be great for the most part one day and then could be completely tanked the next day. Um, for patients to get to a clinic could be very difficult. Just the act of driving there, the act of just speaking with one of us, you know, like receiving their history could be a lot of like cognitive demand on them. So it's having to sort of relook at what we call PT for them. It's not like three times a week for four weeks. Um, we're doing a lot of virtual things to make it a little bit more accessible, but it is, it's a big question mark right now, which is not the most helpful answer. So do you foresee this being classified as a disability, like a long-term disability, like fibromyalgia, fibromyalgia or something like that? It should. Because like it. Last year, it technically like went under the ADA, but in patients, like we already know this from other patients, but patients are having such a difficult time getting a diagnosis, actually being able to go through the process if they need to be on disability, be counted as having one. It, in theory, it should, but we already know, like you said, fibromyalgia, with chronic fatigue, with all kinds of like persistent things that patients aren't believed. And for us right now, without set biomarkers, without set diagnostics, it is very, very difficult for patients to get the care that they need and to get the accommodations that they need. I'm, I'm gonna ask a very um, <laughs> controversial question. Yeah, um, go for it. Because when COVID was going on, especially with New York being the epicenter of it, there was a huge disparity in the people who were getting COVID. So I'm gonna make an assumption and I'm betting that it's gonna be a safe assumption that the majority of people that will be experiencing long COVID will be up of certain ethnicity. So do you think that has a part to play in the lack of 
seriousness of considering what could be done with long COVID? That's a great question. Here's what's really interesting on that. For what we're seeing for people who have long COVID, the majority of people are white. And we're like, that doesn't match, right? That doesn't, that makes no sense. So our thought is that people who are not white are not, one, don't have the access to the care. And as we already are not being believed or not being listened to as that happens with us, with many other things with pain and so on that we're not being listened to. So I, I think, and other people have said this too, because it, it doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's not necessarily the stats we see because the CDC just came out with stats at the end of June with long COVID. It doesn't match what we saw acutely. It doesn't match what we already know in healthcare for who has the most difficulty. Um, I think it's just people who are not white are not being counted which is really frustrating, which is one of the reasons I feel the need to be public. I'm Colombian and I'm like, I'm able to say like- Wait, I, wait, 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 did you know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, it's two against oh. one tonight, man. Uh, <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, I love but, that. But <laughs> you, mentioned, you mentioned, you know, people not being believed and having trouble being taken seriously. You had some of those situations within your own family if i remember correctly right because yep. you had yep. um your sister i believe it was and, oh. and some other family Cousin. members who didn't necessarily believe what you were saying and what you were experiencing and kind of do that whole like no it's in your head um how was that and then how is how are those relationships today oh. now that we've gone through um you know a big portion uh, of the the pandemic and kind of you know i don't even want to say that we're halfway or on the other side of it but we're definitely a lot further than we were uh two years ago yeah these are great questions so for everyone who doesn't know this i have a cousin who is a neurologist ironically worse at the hospital i mentioned earlier on so she saw a lot in the beginning um and had made comments in our, you know, our, our family group text. And I just kind of on the side mentioned it to my mom and my sister. This is really hurtful. This is dismissed. They're not maybe addressed at me, but just very dismissive. We can't live in fear, blah, blah, blah. And I kept bringing it up and they just, you know, pushed it away. And when I got COVID again this past December and I put in the thing and she's again, we can't live in fear and going on like, this is terrible. Like I am affected by this horribly every day. I don't have the medical help because it doesn't, you know, properly exist yet. And she just went on about, she knows post-viral illness. So this, if anyone doesn't know, this has happened. We've seen this before. Just, we know this virus is, you know, a specific thing and it's affecting everybody worldwide, but this has happened with other viruses. And I remember she specifically said, antibody mediated post-viral illness, which means your blood test has to show antibodies and five to 20% of people at long COVID don't serum convert and don't have antibodies. <laughs> so if you're looking for something like that, you're gonna miss it. Um, and that was kind of like my last straw. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Um, I feel like my family members in the group text have their own chronic conditions. They're believed they get help from each other. And I left the text <laughs> for the most part, stop talking to everybody. Cause I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. I am the one who was, I was the healthy one, you know, always, I became a vegetarian when I was 10, I was always pushing everybody else to exercise. And I'm saying if like this happened to me, you know, it's obviously going to happen to anybody. Um, and it's just really difficult when you don't get the support. Like nobody spoke up. No one was like, Hey, you know, maybe don't say that, you know, she's actually really sick. Um, and I, in November, I was in an article in the Atlantic magazine that Ed Yong, the Pulitzer Prize winner, interviewed me and other healthcare workers with long COVID about not being believed by our, by our colleagues, by other healthcare professionals. And I remember she hadn't commented on it when I sent that, <laughs> which now makes more sense. So it's difficult because 
with long COVID, we had very finite energy, like physiologically, very finite energy. And the littlest things can set off what we call like a crash or post-exertional symptom exacerbation. And it's really having to look at where am I going to use this energy? What is important? What do I have to do? What sometimes we'll say something's worth a crash. Like you want to go out and just enjoy a day, but stuff like that to me, it's not worth it now. I can't, um, it's so frustrating. I know that exists. It's, I feel very badly for the patients. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm standing my ground on this for my health. Well, I have, I have two follow-up questions. Um, first, I want you to describe what a crash feels like, but it's like running into a wall. And the second one is, I honestly believe that it's not that people didn't want to believe what you were saying, but a lot of people's motive for believing in if COVID was real or not, I honestly believe it was political. So depending mm. on which side you aligned with, Ooh. screw science, screw facts, it's yeah. like, nah, you'll be okay. But we'll get I'll, back to that. But I want you to describe yeah, okay. to me what a crash is. Oh, the crash. What a crash feels horrible. like. Yeah, okay. they're horrible. So the, the official term, you'll say either post-exertional symptom exacerbation, which is what we say, or post-exertional malaise, which comes from the chronic fatigue community. They're basically used interchangeably. Um, and there's a spectrum. Like on one end, it's literally debilitating. Like I can't pick my head up. I can't speak some of the time. I am not functioning. It is really scary. Um, and I um, I wear a Garmin. And it's interesting because if anybody wears, has a wearable, sometimes it'll pick it up as like a high sympathetic thing. And sometimes it picks it up as like a parasympathetic, oh, it's good you're resting. And I can say, no, I'm not okay. Why are you telling me I'm okay? But we're learning people can, we think sympathetic is being bad in these cases, but parasympathetic can also be like a, a bad thing too. So I swing too much in the other direction. Um, and there's a range. Sometimes like you'll, we'll say like I'm crashed, but I'm still functioning. Like I, I don't feel great, but I can still go about my day to a degree. So it really varies, but it is like, it's scary. Um, Sometimes it just feels like kind of having the flu or, you know, just kind of being run down. There are points where just like sitting up makes me short of breath. <laughs> There's points where I just feel like, like my brain is not working. It's not clicking. When it's more sympathetic, I can lie down, put my legs up, all the things, and my heart rate's going to stay up. It just does not drop down. And it can range from like 15 beats above where it should be to I'm like well over a hundred and it's just not going to budge. Um, that really, really varies. And on the other end, the parasympathetic, it is low. It is very low and won't come back up. But yeah, it's tough because I'll get muscle pain, joint aches, not me, but some people get fevers. So for people who don't believe that this is a thing, like someone will just randomly get a fever. That's obviously not normal. That's not in your head. Um, and with long COVID, there's over 200 symptoms documented. So with the crashes, like any of those can flare back up. Mine typically tend to like my heart rate usually is weird. Um, I'll notice like I react to the heat a lot more than I should. Like I'll be pouring sweat and everybody around me is fine. <laughs> Um, but they're rough and it is just it is yet it, like from running it's like bonking but worse um it is not fun at all and that's the thing where you have to really believe patience to be like i can function sometimes and i could say like i'm crashed and you'll be like but you you made it here and you're fine like but i'm not we're learning how to function with it but yeah and the, the crashes too they can range from like a couple hours to days weeks and now when i look back sometimes like i was just in a crash for months and i had no idea you know because it was in the beginning they're not fun do, do, do we have a or do we know of like a range for those that have long covid and then do like they come out of it 
or is it just kind of like you're in it in some form or fashion kind of like indefinitely oh like like having long covid yeah yeah so like are we we aware of people that you know were infected with covid lingered with symptoms you know we at that point we transitioned to long covid and then they're like hey i feel good i'm not having any issues like do we does that happen and and if so like what's the time range like i guess the the better question would be like is there a certain amount of time pass with symptoms for it to really be deemed or considered long COVID as opposed to part of the initial? Okay. You know what I'm yeah. Trying to ask? Yeah. Yeah. It, so this is, I just read a, a little thread on this. So I'm not going to remember the numbers because I like, just read it an hour ago, but they were looking at like relapses, like people that their symptoms fully resolved or were like trending and getting better and then relapsed and had like, a, like many of us had that happen. Like an event happened and things got way worse. I can't remember. They, I can't remember the numbers right now. Um, but it's inter- so let me give an example of this in the winter. I think it was David Petrino at Mount Sinai in New York city, which they're one of the leading experts on long COVID rehab. They were looking for people who had recovered from long COVID, from COVID, sorry, from COVID. Um, it had at least three months ago. And they said it was something like 80%, roughly, I forget, um, of people who called up or, you know, contacted them to say, I'm recovered, I like to be in your studies, were not. They they thought they were. They 100% thought they were better. And then you get to talking to them. You're like, so that's where it's tough because some people will say, I'm definitely better. And they don't realize there's things lingering. Or they'll say, I'm recovered, but... And then you find out, but I can't run anymore. I'm recovered, but I still, my cognition's off. So it's not really recovered. So we don't know <laughs> that. And every time when I see numbers coming out, like, I'm um, like, so from the CDC, they had at the end of June, 19% of people with COVID go on to long COVID. I'm guessing that's an underestimate because people don't recognize it. And that also just, that fun fact, seven and a half percent of all US adults have long COVID right now, which is just going to keep going up. Yeah, so we don't know. Um, and what's interesting is, and sad to see is sometimes people, as we know, can be asymptomatic. They only know they had it because they had to take a test for some reason. And then months later, symptoms pop up. That even happens in children. And that's what's really scary. So it's hard to have like truly accurate numbers, but yeah. So I, that's something everyone has to remember when you look at stats like that, know that it's going to be underreported in part because people just don't recognize it or depending on the, if it's a study, um, like the qualifications to be in it, they might miss some of the symptoms that count as long COVID. Do you feel that had you not gotten COVID that you would be as involved, passionate, whatever word you want to use in this area of tab and, and everything that comes along with that, with the long COVID? I like that. Yes and no. So part of this, my yes is like when I was saying when I was sharing the stuff about the hospital way back when I wasn't sick yet. I didn't know anybody, but I was like, this is not good. And just for a little background on me with that, especially in athletic training, I had this really big interest in concussions. I would say before it became like the mainstream topic that it is and was like sounding alarms to people all over in athletic training. Like this is huge. And I personally am not affected by concussions, but I just you know recognize it affected other people. So I've taken an interest in stuff like that. I think on the no part was hard is there's certain things I know because I'm going through it. And I, I would have been able to read everything possible and still not grasp certain things. Like when I talk to other people with it, whether they're in healthcare or not, it's just like, yeah, yeah. And you too. Yeah. Like we just understand it without having to finish the sentences. So that on one, it makes it harder um, for people who don't have it you know, to advocate and educate. Cause there's just certain things that it's just, like when I'm explaining, I can't speak. Like I really can't speak. And it's, for me, I think that would be hard to grasp if I didn't actually go through it. 
I think though I still would be because even now, well, I'm already sick, but even with polio and monkeypox floating around, um, this is something, you know, I, I've always had an interest in epidemiology and public health. So I think so. But yeah, again, I don't, I don't know that it would be to this degree to understanding how serious it actually is. That's a good question. Well, let me knock on wood. I have yet to contract it. Um, although I've been around uh, people, but I recall um, back in September last year, when the APTA decided to host the centennial function, I was one of those in attendance because mm -hmm. I just felt I needed to get up. Basically, because all right, I was felt like I was trapped in my house because I was treating patients with COVID, so I didn't really want to go around any friends or family members because I have exposure to exposure to it. And I was just getting, I was looking forward to seeing colleagues. So I went, I did wear a mask and I still wear masks now, certain places, but you know, we took off the mask for photos and then some of us eagerly posted it on Twitter and then <laughs> we saw the backlash and I was like, whoa. <laughs> Yes. This is and, this is not good. No, and it's for again, as some of us like who have long COVID or was like people don't understand how devastating this is. It is. And that's one so I recognize when I talk about this too, there's ableism when I say like I used to run and I could dance because what if for whatever reason I wasn't as active and fit before. But just it that seems to get people when they're like, Wow, you did all of this and like that, you can't. So not it's, it's we're trying to convey to people how bad it is. And then the addition, the potential to like spread it to other people when you're going home. Like, I don't know if you guys probably saw this recently, NATA had like a super spreader that was just no precautions anywhere. And that's thousands and thousands of people, you know, all over the country are going and like, and even just for us as a profession, like to model good behavior for everybody else, because I hear stories just, you know, random people I interact with are like, oh yeah, it's over. Like, like someone was just telling me their wife just had um, a preemie and at 29 weeks and they're just like you know lax going to see the preemie I'm like the hospital is lax on this oh gee so it's like it's that's a weird tone because people who aren't in healthcare then are like oh it's fine you know the pandemic's over and i'm here going it's not over or even now just like slight tangent but um the deaths are down they're not what they were in the beginning thankfully but it's misleading because the cases are going up which means the long covid cases are going to go up but you don't hear about that as much in the news. Like every time there's news reports, I'm like, but long COVID, but long COVID, it's not just like the deaths and the hospitalizations. So I always look at that in healthcare, like we're like trying to, like the same way we do with exercise and eating well and all that, like trying to model some good behavior and show people like, this is still going on. Cause unfortunately the news doesn't convey it very well. Well, I, I think a lot of people have gone to the point where it's like fatigue uh, oh, yeah, for yeah, them yeah. listening and seeing it. And some people have come to the conclusion that COVID is going to be like the regular flu. Uh, you get the flu shot, you either get it or you don't, but you're not going to die. So because it's not as grave as it was in the beginning, people have become lax. And people just want to enjoy, enjoy life. And unfortunately, those experiencing long COVID, seem, it seems like their quality of life is affected. And... I am just hoping that there's going to be some sort of diagnosis to say, okay, this yeah. is like a chronic illness and it needs to be managed. So if someone needs to take time off of work to recoup, if they're going through um, a relapse, 
or jobs put in place time for people to have naps something needs to be done to accommodate for patients experiencing long COVID. oh yeah so the disability yeah mm -hmm. yeah the disability like you'll say it's a mass disabling event like i cannot stress that enough mass disabling and and us as pts and say ot's like we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg because like I met someone that he only knew about that he had long COVID because he happened to see a commercial about it on television. Otherwise he had no idea. So many people I've talked to don't know. And so they don't know that they can come to us. They don't know that they can go to the doctor and at least, you know, have, maybe have some sort of help or they, they are getting by and don't know that they are. David Petrino said this, they're like one event away from a big crash. <laughs> like, like so many of us are teetering on the edge of like managing and then just, but they don't know that that's going to happen yet. And it's just going to get worse. And we don't know, like, say for me, it's managed ish. I can't do a lot, but it's managed. Is it going to get worse? And what we know from chronic fatigue, because it looks like many people with long COVID have what qualifies as chronic fatigue. There are studies that the quality of life for people with chronic fatigue, the, the actual fatigue that they get, like it's worse than people going through chemo with cancer. Like it is when you look at all the other like um, MS and things like that, like chronic fatigue is always gonna be at the bottom of quality of life. So that's, we're gonna see that with long COVID. Um, we just don't know it yet. And that's part of it too, is like, this is just gonna, it's not going away. Um, earlier on when I didn't know it, you know, trying to be optimistic and you know, I'm gonna get better. And as we learn more and as we learn, especially from the chronic fatigue community, it's unfortunately it's staying. There might be, like, there might be some people who fully recover. Um, I'm not sure yet, but that's the thing I try to stress, especially as PTs, um, whether somebody's coming to you for long COVID um, or you're seeing them for any other thing and you might be the one that realizes like, wait a minute, something else is going on or even just interacting with their family members, interacting with your coworkers, interacting with anybody else and we might be the first ones that are able to pick up on it. Maybe we're not treating them but we're at least able to start that conversation. But the first part is like, we have to understand, you know, that is the thing that's happening. All right, I have, I have a question uh, in, in terms of the brain fog. Uh, kids get it. Adults get it. So how, as a student, if you do, if you have COVID or had COVID and you're experiencing long COVID, if, is there any accommodation that's going to be made for students who have difficulty concentrating or, because you know, ADHD was a big thing. So has yeah. there been any link to long COVID and attention deficit spans or because uh, Carla just commented that she's experiencing prolonged COVID symptoms herself. So is yeah. there any link with long COVID, attention deficit, or early onset dementia, anything like that? Oh, yes. Um, so these are, sometimes I read the studies and the, or the like little news articles. And on the dementia, I remember once just being like, because they were finding um, amyloid plaques on people's brains post-mortem. And I feel, you know, as PTs, we know what that means. Um, probably um with dementia and then with adhd this is really interesting so this is gonna be anecdotal but like very reliable i have three friends who are pts we have a little you know group dm they all have long covid um and they all have adhd were diagnosed before it like definitely have adhd and all of them said their symptoms got worse like their physicians their therapists noticed that their symptoms got worse and one of them um, works in inpatient and she's with the geriatric population. And before, you know, she knew a lot about long COVID, thought she was developing dementia in her early 40s. And like she knows what dementia is because she works with the geriatric population. And I personally, I started to think I had ADHD and dyslexia. And I've never had any kind of problem like that before. I haven't, 
off the top of my head, I don't know that I've seen studies specifically on ADHD, but just cognition overall, yes. Like there are executive function problems, short-term, long-term memory. For me in dance rehearsal, which I have been dancing since I was three years old, and there's a way you learn how to learn and learn quickly. And I can't build, I'm blanking on the word right now. I can't build on it. Like you learn a little bit of the dance and then you go on and then you go back and then you go on and you go back and I can't do that. And it's just, it's so frustrating because I always could. Um, so I look at that as like my cognitive rehab to kind of practice that. Um, and we try to develop strategies. Like I have a lot of things I have to do now to help me, but that's very energy demanding. And in terms of school, I think that's going to be so difficult for people because again, you have to get a diagnosis, you have to go through testing, but that cognitive testing can be really draining. Like I wouldn't be able to sit through it. There's no way it would crash me. Um, and you have to hopefully have teachers and professors and things who believe it. Like I've spoken to college students, grad students. I've been interviewed by college journalism students who have long COVID and they've, you know, told me about their struggles with it. And it's, there's not always an easy answer because say like, um, as an example, like extended time on a test on one end would be very helpful, but now that's dragging out the time I have to use my brain to complete the task. <laughs> and we make decisions like that all the time. There are so many things like that where I'm like, I don't even know what the lesser of the evil is right now. Um, so we're, yeah, we're gonna be seeing a lot. And I feel very badly for children because as an adult, it's difficult for me as a healthcare worker adult, it's difficult for me to express it and explain it. So I can't even imagine being a child and trying to explain like, you know, what's going on and why things aren't working right. Yeah, it is. That is. And it's hard because actually there's a neuro PT that I know um, in New Jersey that she was saying how. So she works with patients with TBIs that it's not always glaring. Like when you see, see, see someone with a severe TBI, we see the deficits, you know, that's obvious. Um, it's not always with this. You know, she's seeing this in outpatient that maybe the average person wouldn't pick up on it. But when you talk to me, you hear it because you know what you're looking for kind of thing. And so it's really easy to miss them, to miss some stuff like that if you don't know what you're looking for. So for us in home health. What should we looking? What should we be looking for for patients who might have long COVID? Yeah. Oh, first thing with this with home health, assuming more like a geriatric population, this is interesting um, because the data shows that people who are like 30s to 50s are the most affected population, which makes sense because we're working, you know, we're exerting a lot. But there's also the point that are we missing it in geriatrics because we're like we're attributing the symptoms to something else, like oh you're old or you have whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious about that if it's being missed in older populations. The the really big thing is those crashes that people will say they, and it doesn't have to be exertion, like exercise, running, whatever. It could just be they try to do something <laughs> like brushing your teeth. Is This is a real challenge, showering. And they are just wiped out. And especially if you know the person already, it doesn't match. If anybody has a wearable, wearable, it will go off and tell you you're doing a workout when you're literally showering or brushing your teeth. So the wearables are really helpful to track that data. Um, yeah, that's like, that's a big running joke with all of us. Like I'm not, no, I just turned over in bed. That's all. Um, if So if you're monitoring heart rate, um, looking at their heart rate, supine, sitting, standing, and seeing like really big changes, spikes and things you wouldn't expect to see the same with blood pressure. Um, it's tricky it's like because there's like 200 symptoms but the, the crashes the crippling fatigue are big ones um and shortness of breath is one and breathing pattern disorders which is interesting because on one end it could be respiratory 100 we see pulmonary fibrosis lingering things in the icu but then we're also getting shortness of breath from the autonomic dysfunction there could be shortness of breath like i said before but there's like a gas exchange problem and certain things are only coming up on very specialized tests that would get missed on a standard x-ray or a cat scan or something like that but if you're talking to someone and they're, you know, that kind of stuff, and you're like, why are you out of breath? That shouldn't be happening. That's one. And again, keep in mind, it might not just be a respiratory or a cardiac problem. 
Um, and then there was like the cognition, that's the big one and not attributing it to stress <laughs> or age, but that actually could be a sign of long COVID. And knowing that it's gonna fluctuate, it, the presentation really can fluctuate from day to day. So don't assume if somebody's better-ish one day that that means they're improving or that, oh, maybe that must not be long COVID because you're, you're whatever, um, like objective measurements are better today and they could be worse the next time you see them. So understand that like fluctuating pattern, the episodic nature, like we're seeing, it could be relapsing, remitting, you know, like we see with MS um, and just knowing there's no set presentation. Everybody's going to be really, really different, which makes it very challenging. And you have to rule out other things. Like if somebody presents with cognitive dysfunction, please do all your screens, make sure it's not something else, make sure you're sending them physicians when appropriate, because at the same time, you want to make sure you're not calling it long COVID and missing something else that's not COVID that could be treated. So as somebody who's obviously still ongoing, dealing with long COVID, is also a healthcare professional, in your opinion, what does it look like for us moving forward? You know, briefly, we discussed earlier, you know, some people have COVID fatigue, you know, they've moved on, they're not going to wear masks, do any of the things that that is recommended, right? But you obviously again, dealing with the long COVID, being a health professional, in your opinion, what does it look like for us moving forward? Because some people make the argument, um, you know, and, and even, you know, like you said, your family members, like, hey, we need to live our lives. We need to move forward. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, and we live in a society where we're very selfish, you know, because if, if it's not impacting me personally, I don't really care. And I, I say that speaking yeah. as a whole, not just me, yeah. you know, as an individual, but th that is our attitude as, as a, as a community, as a country, for the most part is if it's not bothering me or it's not directly impacting me, then I don't need to make these adjustments. Right. So how do we, in, again, in your opinion, how do we move forward? How, what does it look like? Because we, because at some point, somebody will make the argument like, hey, I'm going to live my life. Like, I'm not going to wear a mask to go to every public space that I'm going to go to, right? So, but it's different because somebody like yourself, you need to protect yourself or, or people that are vulnerable need to protect themselves. So, and again, I know this is very subjective and again, just your opinion, but I'm curious to see with, with somebody who's dealing with it on a day-to-day -day basis, what it looks like to them. Because it's yeah. going to be very different than what it looks like for myself and even many other individuals who aren't dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, so I've been learning a lot about ableism, which admittedly I didn't really know much about before, which is weird as a PT. Um, and I see that ableism everywhere now. Like when they say, well, just stay home if you don't want to, if you don't want to get sick. I'm like, you stay home. <laughs> I, I should be able to do stuff too. And it's just such a minor thing to put a mask on. And just for context too, um, we say with masks, I would love to be an N95 all the time. It is so physically taxing on me to wear one. Like obviously do when I work and stuff, but it is, it flares symptoms up. It makes so many things so much worse because it's so much harder to breathe through than another mask. So I'm like, I wish people who could wear them did because then I could do more things, but I, I have to limit what I do so I don't get sick. So today I was talking to somebody and I was just mentioning like, oh, I got my second COVID booster on Sunday. And they're, you know, oh, why'd you get it? But someone I knew I could talk to about this. 
And I brought up too, and I was, you know, other viruses going on, I would like to get vaccinated for those um, or boosted. And I was saying, you know, it's not only me that I'm concerned about, I am, but in the clinic, I have very high risk patients. They have, they're older, they have, you know, whatever conditions and things going on and disabilities. And I, and I always get my flu shot for that reason. Pre-COVID, I probably would have been fine with the flu if I ever had it, but was always very aware of the patients I was working with and I don't want to give it to them and their families. That is a big thing. And I think for us in healthcare, we get that. Um, sometimes that helps that people go, oh, I didn't think about that, you know, or like maybe you're fine, but you're going to bring it home to someone who's not going to be fine. Um, yeah, because it's it's a tough sell. <laughs> but I'll get this is a good example. So I went, I physically went to the San Diego Pain Summit in February. And the only reason I did one, masks were still required on planes um, because she was very, very strict on this. You had to be up to date on all your COVID vaccines. Um, they provided free rapid tests both days. So you had to take it and you had to wear the KN95s, KN95s that they provided indoors all the time. And it was San Diego, so we could leave the doors open in the room that we were in too, you know? I'm like, so I'm comfortable with that. There are so many things in place and she purposely didn't make it a large conference that year, keeping the numbers down. That's great. You know, for me, I'm like, that's, it, it wasn't a big inconvenience to anybody, you know, and she's, people still attended, you know, from that, it was fine. And it, I'm like, that's such a good example. It wasn't difficult at all versus like, like the example I get NATA. I didn't go, even though this is Philly, which is closed because there's nothing in place. That is, that is very ableist. That is excluding me and many, many people, whether they are sick or disabled or their family members are. I'm like, no, like it wouldn't be hard. Um, but it, it's, like you said, it's a tough sell because we're a very selfish society as a whole. And I think sometimes this resonates with people. It really depends on who I'm talking to. But when you look at the bigger picture, like say the labor shortage, which is multifaceted. Part of that is long COVID. There are numbers coming out right now in the, uh, oh, I forget who said on Twitter, someone doing the study, but it was like approximately two to 4 million adults are working with long COVID. And there are however many people who cannot work. So if you just want to look at that end, like how it's affecting the economy, how it's affecting whatever thing you're mad about that you have to wait for now that typically you could do or get faster because there's not enough people working because we're home and disabled. Sometimes that clicks with people, not all the time. But when you when you try to explain that bigger picture that it's not just my one individual case and you know I'm going through stuff, but it's now affecting other things. Or say even me as like an artist with dance. And I think I don't know if other people think this way, but I'm like, we're missing out on art now. I don't know who, but we're missing out on painters and musicians and dancers because they can't do that. And we need the artists to comment on our times. We need the artists to let us know what's going on in society, you know, and, and communicate things. And we're missing all of that. Sometimes that resonates with people. Sometimes it does not matter at all whatsoever. And like, personally, I've just learned when I'm like, all right, whatever, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> we're, I'm not gonna change your mind. It's fine. Sometimes people come around, you know, and I look at stuff too. Like I don't always intend to like change someone's mind. Sometimes like on Twitter with stuff like this, I just want to open a conversation and other people will see it. Even if I know the person I'm talking to won't. Um, but you know, people come around to or people, if sometimes I'll say something relative to this and why you need to care and months later, they'll come back and say, Hey, <laughs> I have a question now, or, you know, now I have long COVID or somebody else I know does, and now we're being affected by it. So unfortunately more and more people are going to know people with long COVID if they don't have it. And I think that should help a little bit too, but yeah, it's, it's tough. It's very tough right now to try to get people on board. Cool. So we're going to shift the conversation in a different direction now into another area that you've, I would say equally, if not as greater vocally, which is athletic training world and women in the athletic training world. Um, because I know that that is a, a topic that is uh, very uh, near and dear to you. Um, you're not afraid to 
to have that conversation with, with anybody, um, you know, and as you've stated, uh, you know, in some of your tweets about ATC, you know, the, the good old boys club, uh, it, as that profession is. So first of all, tell us your experience, you know, obviously you're doing more of the PT side now. What was your experience in the athletic training world? Like, how'd you get started? Tell us a little bit about that and then how that kind of, you know, what experiences you had or didn't have or saw or whatever the case may be that kind of led you to say, hey, this doesn't look right and I'm going to be vocal about it. I love this. <laughs> so I started <laughs> in athletic training because I was a high school runner who got hurt. That's, I feel like that's how so many of us get interested in it. Um, and I just, you know, kind of went from there. And so I was an undergrad from 2002 to 2006. So keep in mind, times were different than, you know, than now. Um, and it was interesting because I remember my family being big Yankee fans who were kind of like, oh, maybe you could intern with the Yankees. I was like, women can't do that. And that was just matter of fact. And my mom was just, you know, as a, as she, she was in finance and like a big corporate, you know, and it would always explain the struggles being a woman in that environment. And I was like, that's just the way it is. And no one took issue with that at that point in time. And I, my parents specifically sent me to an all girls high school for a reason. I could do anything. And now all of a sudden I can't. And I like, personally, I've never had an interest working with football, but I know so many women who have wanted to, and that was not an option when I was in school. That was not an option when I just graduated at all, especially at like NFL, big division one, like those kinds of levels. Um, and then just learning over time now, like the ways I've learned about ableism, learning more about gender discrimination and misogyny is so prevalent in athletic training, even though we're more than 50% women, still patriarchy. Um, and meeting other women who are not able to pursue what they want. Because say us in PT, like, I'm interested in something, I can go that route. You know, there's not, my gender's not in the way. I know that. And that was not the case in athletic training. Not me personally, but like for other women I know, I, like I, I worked with students who, their mission, I actually don't know what they did in the end, but we're like, I'm doing it. I'm getting to the NFL. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to fight everybody. And I'm like, you shouldn't have to do that. It should be based on your qualifications. And I would see males who were not nearly as qualified objectively by grades and stuff like that. If you're just looking at like the soft skills, like just not there. And they got the opportunities. And I, and I think how to say this without giving anything up. There's someone I've been talking to recently who's experiencing what happens when you promote, literally promote in a job, mediocrity. And when I'm saying like, we need to hold each other accountable, gender's one aspect, because look what happens when we don't. <laughs> We're not only are we put, like women are not getting jobs that they should, but people who are not as qualified keep getting these jobs and it just perpetuates it. And when I always hear like, you're being negative, you're anti-AT, I'm like, I'm trying to help. And I'm in a position where I can speak up. Like I always say, what are they going to not hire me for the job I'm not applying for? <laughs> I, 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 there's nothing to lose right now for me versus I get DMs from people who would love to speak up, but either we call them YPs or young professionals, either they can't because they need a job and they know there's going to be, um, there's an, they're going to get retaliated against because they see it happen to me. I've been blacklisted, I've been lied about. Um, so I'm like, I'll speak up, I'll do it. Or other people would like to, they know they have a little platform. They know that they're cishet white males, so they have power. But they're like, do I want to get sucked into this? Do I want to now be in the middle of, you know, what they see me anytime I speak up on something? Um, so it's really frustrating. And it's not only on, I think, for just women having opportunities. But I see clinically how it affects things. When we see, I speak about this a lot, deaths in college football from exertional heat stroke. You can trace that back to why that's happening. It's not just simply one person didn't know how to handle the situation. There's a lot of other things that kind of led up to it. 
And I always look at, we can be so much better. There's so much that can improve. There's so much, there's more opportunity we can give to people. And it always reminds me, there's a meme that says, it's not pie. Giving me opportunity doesn't take something away from you, but that's how it's viewed. Like a few years ago, um, the board of certification, so that's you know who we take our, our certification exam through, they had a position open on, the, on their board and they were encouraging, I forget the wording, but diverse applicants to apply basically. Oh, people were mad. They were so mad they wanted diversity in people who applied. And they, literally people said, imagine if they specifically said, I only want a white guy. I'm like, they do that all the time. They just don't say it. My example, not being able to have an internship in Major League Baseball if I wanted. That, that's the unwritten thing all the time. And it's just, we don't realize that. I've seen things where people say like, oh, the one time they wanted a woman. I'm like, oh, God forbid. <laughs> it, it's crazy. And it, it affects so much down to patient care. And we don't realize it. And, we're, and the thing too, when I was talking about with long COVID, the, the labor shortage, AT has a big labor shortage right now. To me, it seems like more than what we're seeing in PT and other, in other areas, some areas of healthcare. And in part because they're done. The younger generation is not having it. And now it's the concern because the, there's so many job openings. I'm like, hey, so when I stopped working as an AT and I told you why, and when everybody else stopped working and they told you why and you didn't listen, now look what happened. <laughs> We're not going to get everybody back. They've left. They're doing other jobs. They've become other, they've working, they're working in other healthcare professions now. So I- Do you force- do you foresee that with physical therapy? Because I'm noticing quite a lot of PTs are getting frustrated quickly with the decreasing uh, return on investment and wanting to do something yeah. else completely. Yeah, that's rough. Oh, that's a whole other story. Oh my God, yes, that is terrible. And I think many of us didn't realize that going into PT school, like, oh, I want to take out loans. You know, everyone does it, whatever. <laughs> Especially on the insurance end of it, um, as we're not getting reimbursed. That's interesting because I know I'm seeing more people go cash based, which is good and bad. Good because you're going to work, bad because you're only seeing people who can afford cash. Um, that's tough too. I, I've seen a lot in PT where I think people are getting creative in how to use your PT degree and training and education within the field, even if you're not treating clinically. Maybe not officially leaving, but yeah, I know that's happening too. It's sad. <laughs> I are you talking recently. about? Yeah, you're talking about non-clinical physical therapies? Yeah, yeah, stuff? which, yeah, which that is, so this is an interesting comparison, because when I went to the, my first Women in PT Summit, and it was great, because they were giving all these examples of the non-clinical jobs, like, go, do your thing, whatever you want to do, versus on the AT side, they're like, we're done, goodbye, good riddance, you don't want to be in, they call them traditional settings, and if you're not in the trenches, even if you're in academia, like, nope, they're not interested. So seeing that difference is really interesting. Um, so PT seems to be a little bit more open to that. So you have the non-clinical jobs that you, and that we can still, it's still helping us. You didn't leave. You're just in a different role that's still contributing to the profession. I think AT needs to do that a little more. Okay. I like uh, on the AT <laughs> side, how much do you think is a result of just the subpar pay, right? Yes. So. You know, like in PT, we don't really have that problem where women have some of the documented difficulties that you would find in, in the ATC world. Um, you know, women make up the majority of, of physical therapy professionals. Yeah. Uh, and for the most part, I like to think and say that they get to do what they want to do with not so much resistance. But we also make better money. Yep. than athletic trainers do, right? So now if you're having to face not only the gender uh, barriers 
to try to get to these sought after positions. But then on top of that, you're not getting compensated in, in what one would say is a fair manner. Like how much of that is contributing? I mean, I feel like we're seeing that as well in, in the teaching world, right? Like you've got teachers who have just said enough, you know, here in Tampa, my kid, my son starts school tomorrow. I think the last thing I heard is the county was like a thousand teachers short. Wow. Right. So, wow. and a lot of that has to, be, they're just not compensated appropriately. Yeah. Um, how does that factor into the ATC world, in your opinion, not only for the women, but just the, the profession yeah. as a whole? Yeah. So this actually ties back to misogyny and the, the good old boys. So yeah, historically, ATs have not gotten paid well. Um, and part of that, I always say that's been our choice because they try to put it on like the, the young generation, don't take the job. I'm like, but they need the experience because you make fun of them for not having experience. But then if they take the job, they're contributing to the problem. So it needs to come from higher up. So part of why is, um, this is so frustrating. So this is changing right now, but it used to be that you got your undergrad degree and then most ATs, I forget the number, but most would go on for a master's in whatever and would be a grad assistant. So they're like, oh, you're getting experience and you're getting a free degree and you're getting paid like nothing. It's, it's horrible and the hours and stuff are crazy. And now that they're switching to entry-level masters, they're like, but what about the grad assistants? I'm like, hire full-time staff, crazy concept. Just hire and mentor them the way we do. Hire new grads and mentor them, not hard. Um, so it's tricky because while we're going on and on about salaries, I'm like, but we did that. And then you're saying that the new grads and the young professionals aren't worthy of pay. Why are they going to want to pay us then? They're just going to hire the new people for cheap and they're not looking at quality, which is a whole other story, but it's rough because we, the younger ATs also here, like what we as like as a millennial, I hear all the time, like, oh, just live within your means. I'm like you're making 25,000. How do you live within your means? <laughs> like you're an adult. What, that's not possible. Um, wait, 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 wait. ATC salaries, 25,000? There are places, yeah. And 40 is like, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. and, and when you when you do it hourly, <laughs> when you factor in, because there's no overtime, but when you factor in, like, by because it's more than 40 hours a week, it's bad. It's really bad. Yeah. And the, the, the trade-off is like, oh, but you work for this big fancy school. Yeah. Okay, okay. So those who are working with, like, pro sports team, or division one teams that's their salary range as well too? no so pro sports i don't know the numbers they do better like it's livable but oh okay. division one's horrible division one is terrible everybody knows this in at division one is terrible for pay you will get way more out of high school whether like new jersey is a good state for high school pay whether you're in new jersey or a state that doesn't pay as well you will make so much more in a high school than division one yep that is a known fact and and part of that because we've done that to be like but you get to work with this team and name drop and, you know, be on television and all that stuff, say no. And when we'll look at the strength coaches who sometimes make a lot of money, they prove themselves. They stood their ground, whatever they did. And now they make their money. The coaches make their money. Say no. Eventually, Do you guys have a union? Have Do you guys have a no. union? No. no. Well, that's, it, a big, that's a big point too. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the strength coaches because a lot of times, you know, obviously, and I'm going to, reference specifically division one college football okay. money maker you know as these coaches get hired into these new programs oh, you always hear that they bring the strength coach with them yeah. right so they have a strength coach that they've worked with established a routine the players 
you know, act and look and react and perform a certain way. So they want to bring that with them to that new program. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get the, the head athletic trainer that comes. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like, hey, you're inheriting this new coaching staff, new philosophy, kind of deal with it. So it is interesting to see how those strength coaches have positioned themselves, at least within Division, yeah. division One football, to say, I'm an integral part of the way that this program is going to function because me and this coach have a relationship. We both like the way it works. The results speak for themselves on the field, you know, and everything that comes after that. Whereas the athletic trainer would theoretically should be just as an integral part of that because it's a cycle, right? Like yeah. you have your athlete perform, but at some point or another, that performance level is going to drop off, whether it be injury, whether it be nutrition, whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. where an athletic trainer could kind of fill that gap so that the, the strength coach can continue yeah. to, to do. You know, my background is sports physical therapy. Mm -hmm. I do the sports residency. So I'm very familiar with that whole dynamics. And I've always been surprised because, you know, the, the money issue is truly a reason why, even though sometimes I regret it now, you know, when I was in high school, I played soccer, was always in the athletic training room, and that's how my love for rehab uh, started. I At that time, my high school athletic trainer, who is now, a, I think his last title was the head of athletic training for the University of Miami, um, you know, I spoke to him all the time. I was very cool with him, and I was telling him what I wanted to do. He's like, man... I do this. Don't get me wrong. I love what I do. There's no money here, you know, and he was kind of the one that guided me to physical therapy um, because he's like, I know you'll love this, but there's no, there's just no money here. You're yeah. going to work endless hours. You're not going to, you know, the, the return on investment at that point just isn't great, yeah. which is sad because, you know, I was, I graduated high school in 2001. We're now in 2022. Doesn't seem like much has changed uh in 20 plus years no. uh, yeah, it's no. it's terrible um when i moved back to new jersey because i was in at penn state for four years um i fell into an at job interim at right at the beginning of august someone left the university i filled in and they and i was it was through a clinic so i was getting paid hourly and they offered me the staff job at thirty-five thousand. i'm like for 80 hours a week no and i knew that they weren't looking at my pt background at all and that like no, I, and I literally said, I have a mortgage. We just bought a house. And right after that, obviously like a new grad took it. You know, it's what, I, and they were understaffed too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm doing Wait, this so right now. Do yeah. places get an advantage if you are both an athletic trainer and a physical therapist? It depends. Some might. Um, and sometimes we see in professional sports, they want both, um, but not always. I've been in situations where like, it's nicer in a PT also, but nah. Yeah, especially in like a college setting. Sometimes though, some universities do specifically hire a PT for like the rehab component, which is weird because in theory, the AT should be able to do all that. Um, there's there's some really weird things that go on right now. But yeah, it's sad because the the older school mentality in AT is like, yeah, you're doing it because you love it. We're not in it for the money. And people like me are sellouts because we went on to another profession. But you want to live your life. You want to have a family. You want to be able to afford basic bills or to tie back what if you end up chronically ill or disabled <laughs> now what do you do you know you're not you're not going to make it on thirty thousand. that's not possible 
Um, it's so, so frustrating. And there's room for change, but we have to to be willing to work for it. And I see it in the younger ATs more. It's not to say all the older ATs, it's definitely not. But there's still a mindset in there. And it's so difficult. I can't tell you how many times I've been called a sellout. I, I was I was about to ask you about the two four, like uh, which which um, side you be on, because oh, you know sometimes even, there's eighty. It's ridiculous. PTs. I okay. will be honest, as I am. I will be honest with this. I see a lot of propaganda, which I used to believe, and other PTATs also said the same thing privately. I used to believe this too, and then I became a PT. You're like, oh, that's not true, <laughs> but it's still there. And I'll, I'll sometimes I'll say to people, like my friends privately. Go on PT Twitter, find where we're talking badly about the athletic trainers. Go find it. And it's not there. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we're, too gonna... we're too busy bashing each other. I know. <laughs> and like, and everyone's going to have like, you know, everyone's going to have a personal story. Oh, I met this one PT, this one. Okay, fine. That's going to happen, whatever. But as a whole, no. And my example back to when I went to the women in PT summit, they're like, because that's the first time I met everybody from like PT Twitter. And they're like, oh, that's so great. You're an athletic trainer. They were like so excited. Cool. You have something else versus like, oh, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, this is okay. Because on the other end of it, I always got like, oh, you're a PT. Oh, you do research. Like it wasn't as accepted, um, which is really frustrating. So there are a few of us who are dual credential that we try, you know, we try to educate people or like, you know, here's what you need to know about the other profession that you might not know. Here's the stuff that's not true. And I'm telling you that because this is my job. I work in this and I can tell you this is not, you know, what's true. But it's tough. But I think some of it goes back to like, say, like the pay and things like that, where you get kind of like a little chip on your shoulder because, you know, you're in a tough situation working crazy hours for not a lot of money. And to AT's point, not everybody knows about what we do. Not everybody realizes we're healthcare professionals. You know, the, the name is misleading. Our history, you know, before just taping ankles or whatever, you know, we've, we've progressed, but not everybody, everybody realizes that right now. I get it. So you guys have the same marketing problem as, uh, as physical therapists, I see. Yes, which I don't entirely understand because as an AT, we're on television all the time, like at professional sports, division one, Olympics, whatever. We're on television. You obviously don't see the rehab typically, but you see like people run out on the field. You see something that happens on the sidelines. If you're at the game, you're going to see more. So that's always interesting to me um, how we're not known a little bit more because what other healthcare professionals are on TV for real television, not like a show doing their job. Not many. <laughs> She said on real television, though, for sure. No, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> well, Daria, we want to thank you very much for oh, coming on you. with us tonight. It was a blast. Um, it, was feisty, awesome. it was nice to finally get to, to meet you and, and, and put a, a real life face, not a picture, uh, to, to the name and, and to all the tweets and uh you know keep keep finding a good fight girl keep finding a good fight I'm um trying. you know you you your work and your time and effort putting into it, it 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 is paying off you know and if it's only one person that learns something from it then then i think you're doing you're doing an awesome job so definitely keep it up you know it, it's nice to to hear you know your point of view on it obviously as somebody who's dealt with the COVID and been in the ATC world and all those different things. Like we need to hear those experiences. We need to hear the good, the bad, the ugly, um, so yeah. that we can try to, to make some sort of change or, or to lead some sort of change. You know, we always common theme for our show is here is like, we're stronger together. Um, and, and the only way that we can do that is by, 
you know, by voicing those, those experiences, those opinions, and, and trying to find some common ground. And, yeah. and definitely appreciate your time on the show tonight. Oh, thank you. Can I add something really quick? Because you just reminded me. Sure. Together, long COVID physio. I didn't mention this. Um, so in November 20, feels like so long ago, I and Darren Brown, who is now our chair of Long COVID Physio, we were tweeting, like, we should do something for the profession. We started to find each other, PTs who have it. And we started this group that was just peer support. We started with a little Twitter DM, outgrew it, moved to Facebook group that was peer support, specifically PTs, OTs, healthcare professionals with Long COVID. And now we're this big international association. We do education and advocacy. So we are going to have, yeah, ready? We are going to have our international long COVID physio virtual forum, September 9th and 10th um, on our website, longcovid.physio. You'll find all the information. CEUs, $50, 11, I think CEUs. <laughs> and we are going to have 80 speakers from, I think, 17 countries. Um, and it's really neat to show the together part because it's not just me. It's not just Darren and you know our executive board. We have, like I said, many different healthcare professionals, physicians. We're going to have patients speaking because we're learning even more now that it's not just me as the PT, AT, whatever, telling you about the science, but me as a patient sharing my lived experience. And that's so important to get patients' voices because how many of our conferences never have a patient speak? We just tell each other about the conditions that we're not living with. And long COVID, we're the, the patients are the ones who brought us to everybody's attention. We're the ones that started this before all the clinicians and researchers and stuff um, listened to us. So I'm really excited about this, that we have our forum. Um, and there's also scholarships available. If there's any patients who have long COVID, when you register, there's a way to click it. So it's not $50, um, which is really exciting too. And accommodating people from like countries at lower income and everything. We're trying to be very inclusive. We're very accommodating. Things will be very accessible. Um, it'll also be recorded because we know people with long COVID and other conditions cannot do two full days on a screen. So there's gonna be a lot of things to help um, with that too, which is really exciting so to see how much we've been able to do in a very small span of time. When you think about, you know, we're APTM members and all of that and how hard it is to, you know, get things going. We're like, we're just gonna do this on our own. And the idea came to me literally from CSM and NATA rejecting our proposals. I'm like, you know what? Let's just have our own conference instead of one little half an hour, hour talk. We're gonna do a whole conference. So it's really exciting to see this and have everybody on board. And what's nice too, is you all and everyone's having allies, people who are giving us platforms, because sometimes as patients, even as healthcare workers, people kind of like, they, I, you see this on Twitter, they say that we're crazy. It's in our heads. We don't know what we're talking about, even with the background in healthcare. So like we have a massive rock star lineup for this, which is really exciting. And I think it's going to show a lot of healthcare professionals. This is how you do it. This is how you have an inclusive conference. This is how you listen to patients. This is how we listen to other professions. And even within long COVID, I've been seeing not like a turf war, but like cardiopulm is going to do this. Ortho is going to do this. Neuro. I'm like, oh no, this needs to be a team. If this is not one specialty in PT or any other aspect of healthcare, this is everybody. This is social work. This is neuropsych. Like this is everybody coming together. So it's really exciting. We're going to have lectures. There's going to be workshops and panel discussions. That's awesome. As you start stuff out, let us know. Um, we'll gladly, you know, put it across our all our social media Thank platforms and, and help out. You know, as always, and we're here to help however we can. Um, please, you know, reach out if you need anything from us. But again, thank you very much great. For, for spending time with us. We're very grateful for your time. Um, and obviously, well, thank you. An hour in front of the screen, as can be challenging for you and others, we definitely do appreciate your your time and effort in that. All right. Um, and then, as thank always, you. for all our subscribers 
and followers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Continue to support, like, comment, subscribe, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, uh, whatever. Spotify. Spotify, Spotify, TikTok, yeah. Instagram, all that stuff, you know, support us. You know, we really appreciate all the support. Um, Daria, thank you again. And then everybody have a good night. Take care. Be safe and appreciate everybody. You guys have a good night. Thank you. Good night.